1: Hello, this is Tom Hedliston, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
2: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: Wait a second. Before we attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs, let's just open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. Wes Anderson is always worth the trouble. Open the sack. <laughs> a clip there from Anderson's latest Isle of Dogs, the director's return to stop motion animation. And yeah, just maybe Josh, a movie worth tearing ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs over.
2: Plus final four matchups in our film spotting madness best of the 90s tourney, and the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and I share our top 5 Wes Anderson scenes. That and more. Oof. You want you want a wolf
0: variation? I do. All right. <laughs> We could do this all night <laughs> ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's been four years since Wes Anderson's last film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. In honor of that film's release, Josh, you and Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune shared your top five Wes Anderson scenes. We're going to revisit that top five this week. And of course, by revisit, I mean we'll replay it. Have you put together your list in those four years? I still haven't. What? I will admit that in prepping for this show, I did take a moment. I thought, why not? I can do this. We just rewatched Rushmore. We rewatched Royal Tenenbaums, both Sacred Cows, not too long ago. I'm a big fan of both of those films, especially Tenenbaums, my favorite Anderson. I thought I had a couple in mind, and then I went back and looked at your list, and you took them. So I realized that I was going to have to do a lot more work, and I just threw in the towel. All right, fine. (laughs) Eventually, I will get around to that top five Wes Anderson scenes list, and you will hear Josh and Michael's picks later in the show. Plus, the madness continues results from the elite eight matchups and our best of the 90s march madness style tourney josh we don't necessarily have a winner yet but we do have a loser yeah i have a feeling i know (laughs) we started with 64 of the best films of the 90s and by the end of this show we'll be down to just four we had two coen brothers movies a fincher a tarantino a scorsese a demi and the wachowski sisters and yes a wes anderson joint all vying for a spot in that Final Four. We will see how they fared and get to those results, along with those Final Four matchups just a bit later in the show. But first, to the surprise of absolutely no one, I fell hard for Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs,
2: even breaking out the rare five-out-of-five-star rating on Let It wow. Spoiler alert. The only real suspense now? Will Adam rain on my pet parade? Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it. Ever. You're Rex. You're King. You're Duke. You're I'm Chief. We're a pack of scary, indestructible
1: alpha dogs. Atari Kobayashi, you heroically hijacked a junior turboprop XJ750 and flew it to the island because of your dog. (sighs) Darn it.
0: I've got a crush on you. We get the idea. You were looking for your lost dog, Spots. Does anybody know him? No, no. no, no, no. I have lost all of my pride.
2: Spots, <laughs> if he's alive, may very well be living even at this moment as a captive prisoner.
1: Somebody is up to something.
0: Will you help him? The little pilot. Why should I? Because he's a 12 year old boy. Dogs love those.
1: We'll find him.
2: I'm a dog person, Adam. You've had the pleasure of meeting Clementine, I, <laughs> I believe. Have. Well, I'm also a Wes Anderson person. That's been well documented on the show across our reviews, my top five lists, and my ongoing championing of Rushmore in our Film Spotting Madness tournament of the best films of the 1990s. I fear Rushmore's run might be over this week. You're a dog Person, no, Adam, no, no not even. How's, I own a how's dog. Ellie doing? Yeah, I'm done with Ellie. Ooh, ouch! I'm okay. so done with well, my dog. Can I say you're maybe a Wes Anderson-ish person? Yeah, at least certainly. As you stated, you love the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, you're a fan of Rushmore. I am. Maybe a little cooler on some of his other titles. So we might need you then to be the voice of reason here when it comes to Isle of Dogs, Anderson's second stop-motion film after Fantastic Mr. Fox. The main character is a stray dog named Chief, given a wonderfully weary growl by Brian Cranston. Chief is one of the hundreds of dogs who have been deported from a Japanese city to nearby Trash Island. The decree comes by order of an authoritarian mayor for purported public health reasons. Chief has fallen in with a handful of former pets, voiced by Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, and Bob Balaban, struggling to survive as a pack on the desolate isle. When a 12-year-old boy named Atari, voiced by Koyu Rankin, sneaks onto the island to rescue his banished pet, Chief and the others must decide if they're willing to give up their wild ways to help him, rather than roam should they now listen to this boy's commands. I summarize the plot this way because I think Isle of Dogs is part exquisitely rendered puppet show and part existential meditation on the nature of free will. When we get those frequent Jonathan Demme-like extreme close-ups of the canine characters, I see questions of self-determination in their eyes. Was I born to be wild? Is there a time to obey? What does freedom really mean? Did you get any such substance out of Isle of Dogs, Adam, thematically, emotionally, or I think we need to get into this too, maybe politically. Or as some have claimed, is this just another instance of Anderson literally creating a playset for his own amusement? Was Isle of Dogs a transporting experience or did you want him
0: to just take his toys and Mm. go home? I so badly... Would love to rain on your pet parade, Josh. Why? I don't know. It's just fun. It makes for good radio, I guess. (laughs) I'd love to be the villain shutting down your doggy park, but I can't do it. Can't play dog warden? I can't because I found this movie pretty delightful. Oh, great. I'm so happy. No, I really did. And you bring up the political and I came into the movie and I read nothing on this film. I managed to avoid any reviews or anything really of substance other than, of course, seeing the trailer, I think, once or twice in the theater. But you can't help it sometimes. I think I saw a tweet of yours where you mentioned something about it being political. And then earlier today, I saw in my stream on Letterboxd, another critic mentioned political. So I'm going in with that in mind. And through the first 30 minutes or so of this movie, I'm thinking, really, guys, this is where we're going with this movie? Saying it's political is like saying it's about dogs. It's it's baked into every aspect of the story. You've got a corrupt mayor, a corrupt bureaucracy, rigging votes, executing these shady, inhumane decrees, silencing critics, silencing scientists in this case as well, exiling the other to their own island. They kind of become these prisoners and then refugees of sorts and I don't know if this resonated with you. We even get the student rebellion angle. Greta Gerwig voices an exchange student that, of course, makes me think of the Parkland students making her voice heard in this case, making change happen. So I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. Of course it's political. So what? And then the line where it finally all clicked for me. It happens pretty late in the film and it informed a few other moments that I did make note of earlier. I can't even remember which character it is who says it. I think it might be Atari, it might be the boy, but actually it might be Chief. I just came from it. I still haven't really read anything on this film that might remind me. The line is, we have to ask ourselves who we are and who do we want to be. Mm -hmm. And this really gets at the core of what you're saying about free will. I think that's actually a fundamental Anderson question, even in all of his less blatantly political movies, characters clinging to a certain ideal, an anachronistic sense in most cases of civility and decorum in a vulgar age. And man, we are living in a vulgar age right now. And this is probably his most hopeless rendering of that sense of loss Hmm. of civility this movie could be called children of dogs frankly and so where it all made sense to me and i think i kind of knew where you and others might be going with this and how it did resonate with me and i considered it to be a profound movie is in the way it expresses the political as personal it's about the individual it's about us as individuals as people recognizing that we can make choices we can make the choice to be compassionate. And we can defy what might actually be our natures. There's a key line that gets repeated by Chief multiple times in this movie, and it's, I bite. And the first time we hear it, I think all of us hear it as a threat. And maybe it is a little bit of a threat, but we come to realize that it's actually just a statement of fact. It's just him explaining who he is as a dog. He can't even explain it, but it is his instinct. It is in his nature but what the movie shows us is he can still make those choices. He can exert his own free will and he can change. And in that way, it becomes one of Wes Anderson's most hopeful films. And I would say quite moving by the end as well. You're nailing it. This Thanks. Is, did, this I get, is did I, so I get much an of the... <laughs> A on my Anderson test? <laughs> you do.
2: This is what is so good about this movie is that there are so many layers like that to it, which are, you're correct, At once, right on the surface, Mm -hmm. but also integral to what is going on within the hearts of the characters and these dog characters, who are really the the main focus of the story and the narrative. It's Chief's emotional journey that we're following here, and that's the key line for him. He he says something like, "Just an aside, Cranston is so good. He really is. I I don't, and I didn't recognize his voice. Yeah, yeah. But well, that's the key to it,
0: right? It's like what Pixar used to do: is don't hire the big funny name." hire the good actor yeah in this case when bill murray actually talks it kind of took me out of the movie for a second because you recognize yeah. him. yeah jeff goldblum a little bit and too. i love Goldblum, but though, they're so
2: it? funny together
0: yeah. but anyways that
2: line that and cranston has that aside you know i don't even know why i do it is is, yeah. is kind of it's speaking to that existential despair within him that there is a desire to be different mm-hmm. uh to do something better But he's fighting against that inner self that won't allow him to do it. So there's the question of free will. But the political stuff, you also nailed uh, one of the key lines that is another throwaway. This is one of Anderson's gifts as a screenwriter is he packs everything the movie is about into these little verbal asides. And it is Atari who says essentially, who are we? Mm -hmm. It's a political call to action. And what is so key about it? is it's in English. Yeah, And this is what, there's been a lot of talk, and I'm sure we'll get into this too, about cultural appropriation. One issue at play there has been the way Anderson chooses to have most of the Japanese characters speak in Japanese without subtitles. Mm -hmm. And Atari is one of those. The dogs speak in English and Greta Gerwig's, the Greta Gerwig character speaks in English as well. Atari gets that line in English. So he's delivering this speech in his native Japanese and suddenly He says that. Who are we in English? Why? Because that's the line that's being spoken to the American audience, Mm -hmm. who this entire film is for, essentially. And I think here's something that's been missed in some of the dialogue about cultural appropriation is that the Japanese setting is absolutely crucial to the film's politics. Okay, I'd love to
0: hear why, because that's one thing I'm still a little bit hazy. Okay,
2: so essentially, yes, Anderson is also playing with forms that enamor him. That's certainly going on here with the Kurosawa references and the music, the taiko drumming, the sushi, sumo wrestlers. All of these things have an aesthetic appeal to him as well. I I would claim he's not just appropriating them, but exploring them and celebrating their beauty. Mm -hmm. But by setting it in Japan, that comparison to the Japanese-American internment camps of World War II becomes the locus of the politics. And so that the American audiences are forced to ask and revisit that. But you could do that didactically or do you do it subtly and subversively by making the quote-unquote American dogs the victims, the American student the heroine in some ways, and that way, American audiences are starting to emotionally equate themselves with the good guys while watching a story that's absolutely indicting them mm-hmm. for something that happened in American history. So I see the setting as crucial to the movie's politics and really important in making that sort of a subtle, subversive
0: element. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of snout fever rips through the city of Megasaki. Blizzards of infected fleas, worms, ticks, and lice menace the citizenship. Dog flu threatens to cross the species threshold and enter the human disease pool. In a special midnight session at the municipal dome, Mayor Kobayashi of Uni Prefecture issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine, the expulsion and containment of all breeds, both stray and domesticated. By official decree, Trash Island becomes an exile colony. I will buy that and He does it so subtly, Josh, that that did not occur to me. And in fact, what did occur to me is my brain couldn't help but think about the Holocaust. At one point, I'm thinking about Jewish people in Europe being interned in these types of camps. And my American brain doesn't even consider that, of course, we did that to an entire group of people in the 1940s. So I'm willing to buy that. And in terms of some of the details he explores and his appreciation, we'll talk more about that maybe here in just a second, but there is a moment where we see someone preparing sushi and i just love in the animation and in that appreciation of the details and the process right that's what anderson really responds to so he doesn't just show us someone preparing sushi at a conventional angle where we are focused on their hands maybe but we don't really see what they're doing and it's just really about the plot it's about the fact that this person is preparing we learn by the end of the scene they're preparing the sushi because it's poison we actually see an overhead shot of this where we see the care, even though it's it, it's poison, we see the care that's going into right, preparing right. this and the detail and the technique, and then later the surgery too. Whether you even want to see it, I just think of it as an Andersonian touch where we see a kidney being taken out and it has that same type of care where he's not just going to make it this obligatory scene where, oh, we can fill in the blanks. No, he's actually he's going to show us what goes into that. The sushi is a great example because – that
2: care is the opposite of making some sort of jokey appropriation. What that would have been is like a three-second shot of sushi and maybe someone going, ew, raw fit, you know, like yeah. trying trying to laugh about it as an outsider. This is someone who, yes, is an outsider, but is also viewing and recreating this with the sort of care that went into, say, the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi, yes. you know, and, and and helping to appreciate the artistry. That is part of that, which which strikes me as different than someone who's just plucking and choosing easy signifiers for yes. for jokes. Yeah. Speaking of jokes, before we get, I don't want the focus of this to be you know a defense
0: of, and we no, can spend more
2: time on it, but let's get to how fun we need this to. And I don't now. really
0: have a defense, but I think we do need to say a little bit more.
2: But can we talk for now a we little can. bit
0: about the jokes? Yeah. Because I laughed
2: throughout this thing that scene we opened with of those two dogs squaring off against each other over the sack of trash mm-hmm. the way. And here's where the stop motion animation is so integral to Anderson's humor, the way the jerkiness of stop motion. You're never going to get around that, right? The, the seconds that we pause, we still register them. He uses those as laugh beats, as suspense beats, and to to get the gag to be strung out a little bit longer and of Mm -hmm. course we have to say at the front too that he's working with an endless team of talented production designers set designers puppeteers Uh, this is hugely as much as it's distinctly his hugely a group project and every little touch they put on it is often to get some sort of laugh out of not just the line readings but the way the characters the dogs tilt their heads Mm -hmm. what they look at did you catch the double take? The camera actually yeah. does a double take at one point. I think it's when Chief says something about, well, I wasn't always a stray. And, yeah. and the camera itself,
0: not only all the other dogs do that, but Wait, the camera itself yeah. is like, what? Explain, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this no, is hilarious. There are some really great funny moments in it. I don't know that I would go so far as saying hilarious. I didn't respond to it that way. I don't know that I needed to, though, obviously, to appreciate the movie. For me the lines and the moments that really stood out were the kind of winking moments like when we hear the Gerwig voice character actually refer to this conspiracy as her conspiracy theory. She says our conspiracy theory. It's not just the conspiracy is what she really means, but she actually calls it what we're all thinking of it as in this case. And then there's a haiku that gets referenced. There are two haikus mm-hmm. in this movie and I think they both end with punchlines yes. that are that are great, that actually did make me laugh out loud. The Oracle bit i won't spoil but they go meet someone who can they meet an an animal that can see the future and that is brilliant and i even chuckled at the moments with the translators because there are a lot of these scenes that feature a translator they are taking these grand proclamations from the mayor from kobayashi they're putting them into english and even the translator it's not just a flat recitation of what's being said they're actually responding sort of emotionally and with mm-hmm. some humor sometimes and you can feel that in their voices and I really did appreciate that but that moment too you're right that's maybe the funniest moment in the movie when the dogs are about ready to attack and Edward Norton's Rex is just like wait a second what what do we do should we at least take a look at this before we we destroy each other and that's really funny but of course it also gets back to everything we were saying it's reinforming the political message of this film it's in their nature to fight over that sack of what they They assume to be food. And it's this desire. He's almost the Gustav character in a way from Grand Budapest Hotel, who's still trying to maintain a sense of decorum and Mm -hmm. trying to say, we don't have to be that vulgar and tear each other apart. And notice that every opportunity he gets in this vulgar age that they're living in, in this terrible setting, he's constantly asking for votes and he's constantly getting votes. They're deciding things Rex, based on people. Is. Yeah. yeah Rex. North, they're uh, deciding yes. how to act based on people getting a say people having a voice. They're making their choice or even if it seems like they're always just going along with him. Mm-hmm. They still have some say and there's a vote. And it seems to reinforce that idea again that despite where we're at in these conditions and how terrible things seem to be, we could give into that or you know what? We can still be rational. We can still reason our way through these problems instead of being afraid and acting on our instincts. Well,
2: and animal characters are the perfect puppets to enact that in. This is why Fantastic Mr. Fox, he worked so well where he could be this reserved gentleman and then scarf down his dinner like like a wild animal. That's essentially what you're getting Mm -hmm. here, too, where there are animalistic characteristics right alongside ones we would identify with as human. And, yeah, this central question of free will, I also like how it comes into play with Atari also – Probably the most crucial scene at least thematically for me comes about halfway in where the pack has decided to follow Atari in search of his dog. I know where you're going. The and slide. The,
0: yes, yes the, slide. the slide. That's his instinct.
2: That's his nature. Exactly. Yeah. He and Chief are separated from the pack. They come across this abandoned amusement park and there's this rusty old slide with here's the key, the sign that says you must be so many <laughs> inches tall and Atari's like what, 6 inches yeah, lower just than under it, it, right? He and Chief look at each other, so much nonverbal, you know, communication going on in in this movie. And you see what Atari is thinking is, I want to go down this slide. Chief, who's also betraying, you know, he wants to be the outsider, the independent one who doesn't care. But here he betrays that Mm -hmm. he's beginning to care for the boy by staring at him and clearly communicating, don't go down that slide. It's dangerous. The kid kid goes down the slide. And I don't want to spoil any more except – after that is a crucial turning point in their relationship, which let's just say involves a potential game of fetch. Yes, I'm not going to give anything more yeah. away, but I found it extremely moving. It is, and also leads to a use of a 1960s pop song, which right. is a you know a trait of Anderson's. This is the only sparingly here, the only yeah. one in this film, and I think it's so effective in too. this case. And otherwise, this is mostly. Um, other references, I, we mentioned the taiko drumming mm-hmm. to Japanese music that Alexander Desplat works into yes. the score. And I, maybe that's where we can circle back to the, the use
0: of Japanese culture yeah, if you want. We can. But first, I want to mention one other key scene for me that I think does get back to some of these larger points we're making about the movie. I think one of the other really touching moments in the film is one where Chief meets Nutmeg. And she is voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And he asks her if she was a show dog because she looks to be the type of dog with a little bit more class and refinement than the rest of them. And she explains that, yeah, she was. That's how she was trained and how she was raised. But she doesn't let it define her. She says something along those lines. And then when he asks her if she can do a trick, she says no. She declines. But again, it's almost like it's who she is. She can't help herself but to go ahead and perform for him in that moment. But because it's not the thing she's, inclined to do at least consciously she she doesn't want to choose to do it even if she might want to do it deep down then that choice to perform it becomes for me this this graceful act almost it's like she's deciding you know what you don't really deserve it no one really (laughs) deserves it but i'll go ahead and show you what i can do i'm going to bestow on you this gift i can choose to do that and so that becomes really touching as well now we get back real quick here to the notion of cultural appropriation I haven't read any of the arguments against this film on those grounds yet, and that's one of the things I look forward to doing as soon as we get out of here. I've been hard on Anderson before. I thought he got it wrong in the Darjeeling Limited, and we're doing this Vincent Minnelli marathon, so I'm thinking maybe a little bit about Isle of Dogs along the same lines as we talked about Cabin in the Sky, the first movie in that marathon where it was all about black culture made by this white person, of course, in Manelli. And it seems to be coming this movie like Cabin in the Sky from a place of respect and genuine appreciation and admiration. Does that mean it can't be criticized? Of course, it doesn't mean that. But also like Cabin, I guess maybe being aware that this discussion was taking place, I think maybe I expected it to be worse than it is more blatantly trading in stereotypes and cliches. It didn't come off that way to me. I'm also someone who's hesitant instinctively to make cases that might stifle artists from stretching outside their comfort zones and trying to tell other types of stories. But of course, I can afford to be hesitant to do that because I am in a privileged position here and a position of ignorance, frankly. So this idea and this discussion is something I really do want to dive into a little bit more and try to understand those different perspectives on it. I did think it was going to be more to use the the popular word these days problematic mm-hmm. than it was at least yeah. for me.
2: Yeah, and and you know, let let's start by saying that this is a good question to ask, right? It's it's good that we are looking at films this way. And also I would add that I concede to anyone's opinion on this who might be more closely connected to Japanese heritage than I am, of right? I mean, yeah. how they feel about it is what ultimately matters. And there has been some good writing done on this. I would recommend Justin Chang's piece in the LA Times. His review digs into this and makes some good points along these lines. Uh, you know, I, I found it was interesting. The way I experienced it was somewhat similar. Somewhat similar to the way I experienced um, the use of another culture going on in Black Panther. And I described that movie as being holistically diverse in that these traditional African elements were being woven into every section of that film. Yeah, you know, didn't It didn't feel was, obligatory it, in any it way. It didn't feel obligatory at all. And similarly, I don't think that Isle of Dogs is cherry-picking Japanese culture, as we talked about. We've mentioned some of the uses, but there's also this detail that any on-screen English text is accompanied by Japanese script. So given a place right alongside, an importance right alongside. And, and I experienced the use of Japanese language without the subtitles as that as well. I didn't experience that as othering, but as a item of respect that This country has its own language. Let's Mm -hmm. listen to it. Um, This is one of the reasons I dislike the Disney dubbed versions of the Hayao Miyazaki films. I'm I'm glad they are distributing them in the U.S., but I'd love to have them in Japanese language. Okay, there's also... You know, touches like how the landscape, so many of the landscapes echo the woodblock prints that people are probably familiar with of Katsushika Hokusai, especially uh, this image of the wave. And how about even the mise-en-scene is influenced by Japanese screen prints. There are a lot of sequences set on the mainland back in the city where the screen is divided into separate panels. Mm -hmm. So intense care is given to this. It's done throughout the film. And That makes it sort of a movie that's of Japan but not of Japan, and it really reminded me of Black Panther's vision of Africa, which is filtered through this fictional nation of Wakanda. And obviously they're not one-to-one comparisons, but those were primarily African-American filmmakers depicting traditional African culture Mm -hmm. through a fictional variation of an African country and – there are ways those filmmakers are clearly closer to that culture than Wes Anderson is to Japan. Mm-hmm. But I still feel that they share this holistic approach that, to me, did not smack of appropriation.
0: Yeah. You touched on the emotion of this movie, and I know that we both felt that it was moving in certain instances i think for me maybe the the single gesture that really stands out is one that happens early on and it's when we get some of the backstory between atari it's a flashback atari oh, and yeah. and spots yeah. and it's just a pet it's a simple pet that was enough to make me feel terrible for how much i hate my dog right now <laughs> for all the peeing she's doing on our <laughs> carpet it it melted me in an instant and made me want to go home and actually show her some love and affection. And he doesn't overdo it. I don't remember the music really reinforcing that in any way or even the camera drawing a lot of attention to it. But there is something so inherently compassionate in that gesture. These, these two creatures that, that are coming to each other in this moment, wary of each other mm-hmm. and then... I think maybe actually just occurred to me it gets back to this idea of of their instinct and what's in their nature. It's it's a little boy and it's a dog. And of course, the dog wants to be petted and the boy only wants to pet the dog. And they they let that happen. And well, what's moving about it is that it doesn't focus in on the pet, but
2: it pulls that away from us. Right. The mayor at this point, we've learned that Atari is the adopted nephew of the mayor. Mm -hmm. And this is early on in a flashback. So the mayor has assigned this guard dog spots to Atari and they're meeting for the first time and because the mayor you know, really hates dogs and has this plan to deport them, he doesn't want them to form that bond. So immediately he, does he even say something like no touching? Yeah. And he makes them communicate by these earbuds that translate Mm -hmm. Atari's Japanese. So it's a subversive act. It's a political act. It is. It is a little bit and it's emotional because we're responding to the touch being taken away. Mm. Not having a big, mushy hug foisted upon us. No,
0: and actually, it's not as subversive as I'd like because it happens right before, I think, they're told. It's actually what incites the Major Domo character to tell them there's no touching because they have that pet, they have that exchange there in the moment. But I would say one thing that did stand out to me, and I wonder if you reacted similarly, is I feel like Wes Anderson actually overdid it a little bit with the emotion in terms of a certain device, and that device is seeing dogs with a lot of tears in their eyes. up, the welling yeah, and, up of and, the And eyes. I wonder if it's just a matter of not fully trusting, and this doesn't sound like Anderson to me, but not fully trusting the stop-motion animated pet faces to convey the same type of emotion that an actor or actress would in that scene and that we would respond to it. So he had to reinforce it in some way, but... Yeah. But I don't think that would be the case. I think that the story and the voice work and the dialogue does all the heavy lifting for us. And we didn't we didn't need it. And we see it like 10 times in this. Yeah, movie, it happens at least. a lot.
2: It happens a lot. It's also a device that's used in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, it, it worked on me every time. Hmm. Maybe I'm just a sucker, but I do agree there are maybe three or four <laughs> more times than we need. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, just guessing here, but I wonder if. The animators are just so thrilled at the realism. Maybe that's not even the right word, but just the ability to have us experience a natural biological function like that. So detailed. The Mm -hmm. details in this are amazing that they're just like, we've pulled this off. We got to keep doing this because it's so much fun. And you feel that in this film. You feel everyone's hands on this movie. Did you notice the one shot where there's a flea? Running through the ruffling fur of a dog. I mean, these are the sort of yeah. people at work here who are going to spend, I don't know, maybe it took six hours. Maybe it took two days to get that shot of the flea. But they're going to do it and it's going to work. And we haven't really paid all that much attention to the beauty of the stop motion here. I think it's a fantastic Mr. Fox. is one of my favorite Wes Anderson films. The animation is amazing. in it. I think this is a step forward in terms of world building. This trash island, the way the camera moves through it and explores it, Mm -hmm. there's a curiosity to it, um, is just so exciting. And how about that sequence early on where Atari has gathered with this pack of dogs in – it looks like a cave of sorts that's been made out of discarded sake bottles. And they're different colors. They're like green, yellow, red. And this is about sunset. So the light gets filtered through these. And at one point, we have an extended conversation with them in silhouette mm-hmm. against oh, yeah. this backdrop. It's gorgeous. And just think about, like, yes, you could create that on a set live. You could find that somehow in nature and capture it. But to envision mm-hmm. and set design and plan and execute it on it. this yeah. miniature style and then execute it is just astonishing to me. There's one other visual moment I want to call out, and this is the gorgeous melancholy montage as Atari and the dogs are traversing the island. They're going in search of spots. And it's essentially – it reminded me of that sequence in the Florida Project, actually, where Mm. the kids pass a series of businesses and we cut from one to the other as they're moving across the screen. It made
0: me think of Moonrise Kingdom, too, of course, being lost out in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's been used. And what they pass, though, are these – like that amusement park, these are abandoned human edifices. So I think there's like a power plant. There's something else. And we learn that each of them has been ravaged by – this ties in with the theme wild nature, right? Like a tsunami or an earthquake has rendered these places, has destroyed these places where wildness has kind of taken over the any sort of
0: restraint mm-hmm. uh, that otherwise might be there that humans tried to impose. Not that we are necessarily trying to be your guide here or suggest what you should or shouldn't do with your family, but this is a movie I would definitely take my kids to. We're going I could Yeah, I could see my 10-year-old, especially Quinn, finding this movie so amusing and enjoyable. And there were two kids behind me with a dad, I think. And I would guess them to be about seven and 10, like my two youngest, who were laughing out loud throughout this entire film and nice. seemed to be marveling at it. So I would definitely say take the fam.
2: It is PG-13, which is weird, except when you remind me of that Surgery sequence, yeah. which is pretty gory. There's also the element of Atari gets to the island via a plane he's absconded that crashes, and he has like a piece of metal in his head right. for the whole film. So I guess there are
0: elements like that that sure. maybe are the reason I think for the, the PG-13 I think the stop rating. motion, it distances you enough from it, and oh, certainly yeah. no, kids we are used to seeing much worse these yes. days. Yeah, I
2: would not say that's something... I'm just curious about the rating. Yeah, why I'm they surprised went that too.
0: Way. You know what? I honestly assume it has to be just because of language because there is one use of son of a bitch and then another use of bitch of course in you the movie right. where you it is right. it is being used correctly to refer to a female dog but otherwise i can't think of any explanation why this would be pg-13 except for the political stuff, maybe, Josh, just in terms of the content, the subject matter, maybe somehow the ratings board thinks it's over young children's heads. But I would say it's certainly not. Isle of Dogs is currently playing in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Time now to find out if Wes Anderson's Rushmore gets sent to the film-spotting madness
2: pound. And you know what that means. Elite Eight results are next. Plus, we revisit an earlier top five with guest Michael Phillips, Wes Anderson scenes. Stay with us.
1: Why does a dog need to be walked? Three birds,
0: So funny, about beasts above understanding. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego. Like Peter Parker or Bruce
2: Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too,
0: and I ended up here, sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go, nowhere, except the Oasis. A bit of the trailer for Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of the best-selling book by Ernest Cline. Josh, is this one that you've read? Are you overly familiar with it? Do you care at all about Ready Player One? Yeah, of course I care. Spielberg
2: movie, Spielberg going, quote unquote, light, which always intrigues me. I don't know much about the book. I wasn't even, apparently it's a a YA novel. For some reason, for a long time, I thought it was like a nonfiction thing. I have seen the trailer that we just heard since we last talked about this. Mm, Eh. I'm with you. But,
0: I'm still going to check it out. Yeah, and I have an oldest son who did just read the book and is a little bit of a gamer. So he is intrigued and maybe this will be a father-son bonding outing next week. You are gone. We'll get to the reasons why in a moment. So we got the biggest gamer we know and really one of the smartest critics we know to stop in and school me and maybe some of you, Tasha Robinson from The Verge and from the podcast, our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show is going to join me for that conversation. Tasha will be perfect. Yes, for she will. And We will share a top five as well. I'm not sure what that topic is going to be yet. Whatever it is, she will be much smarter than me. We will also share the results results of our final four matchups and tell you who is going to face off for film spotting madness supremacy. We said you were going to be gone. You talked about it a little bit last week on the show. Why don't you remind everyone, especially those that might be in the area and can actually make it out where you're going to be what you're going to be doing? Well, next week I'm actually missing
2: the next two
0: shows, Yeah, we might as well Slacker. say now. I know. Next week I'm going is to anyone be going out there wanting to host film spotting. <laughs> I could use I could use a co-host. Oh, I'll be back. I'm going to Northwest Iowa, Adam, your home state, I'm not, jealous. not the
2: area you're from. No, You're a little more from the Eastern. I'm from, I'm from Central. Central. Iowa. OK. Dead all right. in the middle of Iowa. I will wave as I go by driving yeah. towards Northwest Iowa. It, yeah. I'm doing a little bit of a college stop at two places. Dort College, I'll be there on Monday. Then on Tuesday, I'm heading to Northwestern College nearby. Sort of a, a book tour, giving some movies, our prayers, presentations there. It should be a lot of fun. That's next week. The week after that, yes, I will be leaving you alone again. I think – is Michael sitting in? Do we know that yet? Michael, yes. Michael Phillips will be here. All right. So I'm sure he can hold things down quite well. (laughs) I believe he can. I'm going to Ebert Interruptus, which I'm so excited about. Got a chance to do this for the first time last year. This is at University of Colorado Boulder's Conference on World Affairs started by Roger Ebert where he would lead people through 4 to 5 days of dissection of a single movie scene by scene and as i mentioned on an earlier show this year we're going to be doing Mad Max Fury Road a brilliant idea suggested by Denver film writer Ernie Quiros last year after interrupt us we were hanging out thinking about what we might be able to do and he threw this out there Michael J Casey of the Boulder Weekly who helps organize this event thought it would be a great idea and Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me because Mad Max Fury Road is a movie that tells its story almost entirely formally, right? We talked about that when we reviewed it, how George Miller said everything he had to say through action. So I can't wait to break that down. If you're near Denver, anywhere in the area of Boulder, come and join us. We're going to do that April 9 through 13, again, at the University of Colorado Boulder. Also going to have a film spotting meetup while I'm out there we have some details for that that's going to take place Thursday April 12 at a place called the Sink That's in Boulder. We did a little meetup last year there as well. Not quite sure of the time yet. So keep an eye out at filmspotting.net slash events or follow me on social media, Larson on
0: Film. And as soon as we nail that down, I'll put it out there. We will have those details on the website, as you said, Josh, filmspotting.net slash events. And maybe while you're there, it just occurred to me. I don't know why it just occurred to me, but I need to make an introduction because the man ultimately, in a roundabout way, responsible for film spotting is a theater professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. My old Grinnell College roommate, the incredibly talented and brilliant Kevin Rich, teaches there. He's an assistant professor in the theater department, and he is the one who moved to Chicago first, who... Became very good friends with one Sam Van Holgren, not Sam Van Halgren, and is the one who said, you got to meet this Sam guy and told Sam, you got to meet this Adam guy. I think you'd really hit it off. And of course, he made that introduction and the rest is history as we went on to produce Film Spotting. Sam is the first host and now as our producer. So yeah, Kevin very is cool. the, the maven, the social butterfly that he is who made that connection. And here we are all these years later. I'll have to track him down. Also at filmspotting.net. And you click on events, that's where you can get notices of upcoming advanced screenings here in Chicago. Now, by the time you hear this, there may still be some passes available. It's worth going to filmspotting.net slash events if you are curious about A Quiet Place. And I know I am, having seen a trailer, Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, directed by Krasinski. It's a horror film, and it looks sufficiently creepy monday april 2nd is that screening at 7 p.m here in the city and i do encourage people always if you're in the area and you want to go see free movies before they come out just check our events page every now and again things can come and go fairly quickly there a quiet place is a movie that is currently on the docket for that week that you're going to be gone one of those weeks michael phillips going to sit in and Keep me company here in the dark of the studio late at night, Josh, and make sure that I don't get too scared after seeing A Quiet Place. Over at filmspotting.net, if you click on Marathons, that's also where you can get information and see the whole lineup for our Vincent Minnelli Marathon. Reviews of these films appear as bonus episodes in our Film Spotting feed. So if you're already subscribed to the Film Spotting podcast, you will find those episodes appearing on Wednesdays. We are through four of the six films in the marathon. Michael Phillips has been on for two of them. And this week, we had told you, we lied to you, and said that before you even heard this show, you were going to get the fifth film in the marathon, the 1956 Vincent Van Gogh biopic Lust for Life, starring Kirk Douglas and Anthony Quinn. We have taped. As we sit here, Josh, we have taped that discussion, but we are going to air it next week when you're gone. Instead, our timing and our schedule just got a little bit off, and so we thought we would hold it for a week. Again, if you want to follow along with the marathon or see what you've missed so far, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. And you can subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast app is. And you can listen at our website, filmspotting.net. Our Minnelli Marathon
2: is presented by Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem and then you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic like a Manelli film, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, also like a Manelli film, each movie is hand-selected. By experts. You can also delve deeper into these films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Movie's Notebook. This week on Mubi is an offering new to the platform, Mr. Lonely from 2007. It's director Harmony Korine, who's been a cult hero of American cinema for two decades now. Mr. Lonely is described by Mubi as one of his more low-key triumphs, shows his gift for oddball beauty and unique understanding of celebrity and outcasts,
0: a strange, sweet, undiluted vision. A bonus with this? Werner Herzog is in it. Herzog is in that movie, and one of the rare movies that I feel like for sure but i don't have time to glance at the archive was actually discussed on film spotting i mean the rare movie movie because they usually are trading in such obscure films movies that most of us need to catch up with but that is a film that i know got a little bit of time i want to say maybe we saw it at sundance or another festival maybe toronto back in 07 and i'm actually looking really quickly here at our top 5 archive and episode 219 our favorite female performances of the year i had samantha morton from mr lonely as my number two maddie had samantha morton from mr lonely as his number one you were so big mr lonely guys back then i guess so we were at least big fans of that performance and that's even more incentive to catch up with mr lonely available now via Mubi. our listeners can try movie free for 30 days at mubi.com film spotting that's mubi.com film spotting
1: Smokey, this is not nom. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. It's just, hey, man, it's Smokey. So his toe slipped over a little, you know? It's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over.
0: No, this is not nom, Josh. This is just film spotting madness which means a lot of rules a lot of rules actually so many rules (laughs) winners of these elite eight matchups determine who will enter the next round robin the big lebowski there one of two coen brothers films to make it into the elite eight and it had its toughest matchup yet this round going up against jonathan demme's the silence of the lambs we'll have those results in a bit first just a quick madness recap for people who might be new to this process it's our fourth installment of film spotting madness 64 of the best films of the 1990s only one can reign supreme we will have our elite eight results here on the show this week and then we will get to the final four preview and since all four of our top four seeds did advance to the elite eight we'll go in order we're going to start with the number one overall seed pulp fiction from quentin tarantino went up against david fincher's fight club As we've been getting all tournament long some
2: great feedback from listeners, here's Mike H. Since we all know Pulp Fiction is about to run away with this one, I feel a strange sense of duty to be one of the few voices in the wilderness defending Fight Club as a work of high art that's much better than it gets credit for. Decry its toxic masculinity all you want, but that whole criticism always felt to me like an absurdly comic case of missing the point, seeing as how the entire movie, true to the source novel, is one big transgressive satire of how toxic masculinity arises in a society where all sense of meaning and conflict and purpose has been replaced by your identity as a consumer. Which, I mean, look outside your damn window these days if you want to see how sharp and prescient the cultural commentary was in that film. I'm guessing Fight Club will disappear forever after this matchup, but I really hope its message doesn't. When all that's left to watch in the wasteland is Tarantino's re-re-cannibalizations of camp TV
0: and milkshakes, (laughs) we'll need a little anarchic spark left somewhere. Ouch. Very well argued there, Mike H., but it doesn't have a Royale with cheese. That's and Pulp true. Fiction does. And Pulp Fiction <laughs> that crushed, puts it over the top. Huh? I guess so crush the competition here. A virtual beatdown, if you will. Seventy eight percent of the vote to twenty two. Pulp Fiction, the number one. Scene Not advances. even close. Nope. That brings us to our second matchup, which is Goodfellas versus The Matrix. Elijah Davidson says we still have Scorsese's work from the seventies and eighties, right? Okay, cool. The era defining the Matrix, it is then.
2: Okay, I like that logic. Here's Chris Moody. I rewatched The Matrix this week, introducing it to my twelve-year-old daughter. She loved it. Her jaw dropped at the action sequences. She got immediately that nothing Morpheus says makes any sense. It's brilliant
0: but it ain't no Goodfellas. (laughs) Jake Albrecht, I voted against The Matrix every round but this one and voted for Goodfellas every round but this one. Suffice to say, all of my 90s favorites are already on the pyre. Perhaps it is me who should be acquiring a shine box now. (laughs)
2: One more note here from Julio Oliveira in Austin, Texas. I'm pretty surprised by how much praise The Matrix has gotten these past few weeks. Maybe the memory of its sequels tarnishes it for me, or maybe the knowledge that the Wachowskis had much better, Cloud Atlas, and much worse, Jupiter Ascending, in them. Goodfellas, on the other hand, is basically a perfect movie. As good as it gets with Scorsese, as good as it gets with Mafia movies. I don't know how much of a game changer it was industry-wise, but I think it definitely changed many people's ideas about film.
0: It gets my vote. Now, let's just go back because you went through that very rapidly. Cloud Atlas, better than The Matrix. That's a bold statement from Julio.
2: Yeah, I I just I thought I would do him a favor by (laughs) rushing past
0: that. But uh, thanks for pointing that out. Goodfellas advances the number two seed, 61 percent, a little bit closer than Pulp Fiction, but not much. Sixty one percent to thirty nine percent. Our number three seed, the Coen Brothers, Fargo. We just had our Sacred Cow conversation about Miller's Crossing beat out in round one, and that movie's a straight up masterpiece. Well, Fargo is too, going up against a movie That's you also adore a masterpiece. that you also consider to be a masterpiece, and that is Wes Anderson's Rushmore. It's a masterpiece that I'm guessing isn't going to exist much longer. Here's Kyle. As much as this Barreau heavy
2: tourney needs Marge, yeah. I have to go with my heart here and vote Rushmore, Narien du Sacre. <laughs>
0: Great job with the French there, Josh. Thank you. Curry Powell. Why is Rushmore still here? Curry. Curry. Wes Anderson is fine. Oh my gosh. But this isn't even his best film. The Cone's worst film, discounting lady killers and intolerable cruelty, is better than Anderson's best. Just stop reading. <laughs> Fargo is the Cone's masterpiece. Stop this madness, Fargo advances. And indeed it does. With seventy-two percent
2: of the vote. I'm proud of those who went with Rushmore, mm. all twenty-eight percent of you.
0: Okay, finally, a somewhat close matchup as our number four overall seed, The Silence of the Lambs, went up against another beloved Coen Brothers movie, The Big Lebowski. Here's Joel Karpowitz in Raleigh, North Carolina. Silence of the Lambs elevated genre
2: fare to a level that it rarely achieves. It's smart, funny, and tense as hell. I fear the soft spot people
0: have with Lebowski will give it the win. But I think Lambs is the better film. That's where I went as well. Tom Schutzer says, as much as I'd love to see the dude in the final four, I do believe it's time for Hannibal Lecter to have an old friend for dinner, perhaps with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I think that just might happen. Silence of the Lambs, 55% of the vote. So this was fairly close. Yeah, a little tighter, but Lambs did take it, which means we now have your final four matchup set. The number one overall seed, Pulp Fiction, going up against... Jonathan Demme, and Hannibal Lecter, The Silence of the Lambs. That's not going to be close. Probably not. No. And I will be on the right side by voting Pulp Fiction.
2: I'm voting Pulp Fiction as well. Now, things get much tighter here. Yeah. Much tighter. Goodfellas versus Fargo. hmm So, if you're of the belief that these each represent their maker's pinnacles— Which I think you could make the case for. Certainly. I don't – I mean in my ranking, I don't have Fargo that high, but I I completely get the argument and in a reshuffling might put it up that high. Boy, Scorsese and Goodfellas. There's a lot to
0: think about with the other films he's made. I don't know. Do you have an instinct where you're going to go – Yeah, I definitely have an instinct and it's Goodfellas just because it's, I think it was in my sight and sound top 10 of all time or certainly in the top 15 or 20. And Fargo isn't far behind. It isn't. That's how much I love that film. But I guess I just want to have a matchup in the final here of Gangster's mobsters, criminals of some kind that seems to be where this is headed, Pulp Fiction versus Goodfellas.
2: That's probably what's going to happen. I guess you could also say Goodfellas is arguably the pinnacle of the genre, too. Yeah. And so... Even though that's a genre
0: with The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, <sighs> I know. I know. Both also masterpieces. Yeah. Yeah, I think I might have to go Goodfellas. Really? I think you're going so. against Marge Gunderson and her husband, Norm. Okay, now, now you're talking me out of it. Well, we can't wait to see how you're going to vote. And we are wanting to note, at least myself and Sam, Josh, that we, at first, were kind of patting ourselves on the back that our top four seeds advanced to the final four. It arguably suggests that we did a great job seeding this tournament, that we guessed correctly the four movies our audience probably felt were the cream of the crop, the top four. Yes. But on the flip side, it's really boring. It means we don't have a Loyola Chicago. We don't have a Cinderella story. We don't have someone who doesn't belong, quote unquote, in the final four, making things more interesting. And I do regret that. I tried. I did my best. You did. You tried to get Rushmore in there. Not that that would have been a huge upset, but, you know, something like Rushmore maybe would have spiced things up just a little bit. The results that really matter, though, mm-hmm. how our bracket tourney is going. Our predictions. ESPN doesn't track this one somehow. I don't know why you can't enter this one online, but we have our own tournament. Me, you, Sam, Mike Merrigan, a listener who is the creator, yes. the original creator of Film Spotting Madness. And we've been scoring as we go through this tournament. Someone actually sent us an email recently. I think it was Vanessa in Brooklyn who said, hey, I might be willing to serve penance here with the Josh. If he loses and watch the Adam Sandler movie with him. Are there any other listeners out there? Misery loves company maybe if well, they did oh, horrible in their brackets the way
2: i heard that is she's going to watch it so i don't have to mm. isn't that what, that sounds like that's mm. what she was offering i don't offering. think that's and what she was going
0: to report back mm.
2: leave a voicemail perhaps Very Vanessa? clever. you could leave Very a voicemail clever, with Josh. your
0: review and, no. Uh, no no i'm pretty sure that's not what it says so wait but, are we getting ahead of well, ourselves well we are here? getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but she <laughs> asked, I out? she said hey i'm scoring along with you guys i want to know how i'm doing and i'm sure other listeners are too so she asked how are you doing the scoring i don't I don't understand how this gets done. And it's really as simple as doubling each time. So first round is one point, then two, then four, then eight, then 16. If you pick the winner, it's 32. Okay. So if you want to get out your bracket, I'm just learning this did, now. Yeah, too, so. You are, of course, not not part of the process here. Josh, <laughs> you, you certainly are not where we stand right now. OK, as we look at the final four, I am in first place. 112 <laughs> points. Congratulations. I have, thank you, I have three of the final four picks. I missed on Lebowski. I thought it would beat The Silence of the Lambs. I thought for sure it would beat The Silence of the Lambs. That was my miss. Sam is in second place, 109 points, also three out of four. He missed on Reservoir Dogs. He thought that would be there. He lost out on that in round two. Mike Merrigan, third place with 99 points, also has three of the final four. He missed on Boogie Nights, which went out in the Elite Eight, which leaves... You, Josh, picking okay. up the I'm no rear. Longer, I'm no longer tied for third. i I'm I'm No. 83 up. points. 83. Ooh. A full 16 behind Mike. Ooh. You only have one of the four final four what? predicted correctly. You missed on Lebowski, and both Magnolia and Before Sunrise went out in previous rounds. Yeah, where's all the Linklater freaks? I know. I thought we had way more of them. I appreciate your boldness in making those picks. I also appreciate your... Incorrectness, Mm -hmm. as you're going to be the one who it looks like is going to have to watch yet another adam (laughs) sandler film so if my math is correct and we shouldn't necessarily assume that it is if it turns out that pulp fiction faces goodfellas in the final i will
2: win yeah and josh thanks
0: again you will finish last if fargo pulls off the upset over goodfellas and faces pulp fiction in the final mike merrigan will win because he did pick fargo to upset martin scorsese and josh you will still finish last
2: <laughs> with well i've forgotten about that right now i'm worried about the path to having you not win so basically it's that's it
0: it's you gotta root fargo for fargo that's it takes it all. no fargo just has to beat goodfellas and go to the championship match because me sam and mike all pick pulp fiction to win Okay, well, I've just been given my greatest reason to vote for Carmel. You're Argo. just rooting against me now. Oh yeah, it does stink that this is the tournament here that we've created where the loser gets punished, but the winner gets nothing. The winner gets no reward. Oh, you'll you'll be sleeping with a smile on your face for weeks if you win. Maybe you know it's true. <laughs> Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open now at filmspotting.net/slash Madness vote. Invite your friends. Polls go live every week. That's Friday at midnight central time, usually a bit earlier. And they close the following Monday at 5 p.m. All right. Let's get to some more uh, pleasant discussion topics here. Yeah. Rushmore's out. But you guys apparently are going to still love it.
2: We're going to still love it. We're going to still talk about it. As a matter of fact, Michael Phillips and I will talk about it a bit when we revisit our top five Wes Anderson scenes. This is one that we did back in March 2014. You weren't around for that, Adam. You still need to work on your list. I do. For now, let's get to ours. The three Tenenbaum children
1: performed Margot's first play on the night of her 11th birthday. They had agreed to invite their father to the party.
0: What'd you think,
2: Dad?
1: Oh, it didn't seem believable to me. Why are you wearing pajamas? Do you live here?
0: He has permission to sleep over. Well, did you at least think the characters were well developed?
1: What characters? There's a bunch of little kids there dressed up in the animal costumes.
0: Good night, everyone.
2: Well, sweetie,
1: don't be mad at me. That's just one man's opinion.
2: Happy birthday to you. Gene Hackman's Royal Tenenbaum from the opening prologue of Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. And Michael, that's how I critique all of my 11 year old daughter's artwork. I just say it's not believable. You know, I, I find that's been very fruitful and good for her mental health.
1: That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, she'll win a Pulitzer yeah, out
2: of sheer spite. That's my hope. Yeah, yeah. Let's get then to our top five Wes Anderson scenes here on the occasion of his latest film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Michael, this was one where, for me, probably twenty scenes instantaneously come to mind. He's just one of my favorite working filmmakers. Oh wow! Uh, so it was a really difficult list to whittle down. What sort of process was it for you? Did you have those same lines of dialogue or scenes that came to mind, or was it more a matter of revisiting things to see yeah, what really were worthy of inclusion? I, 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 I saw a lot of stuff for the second time.
1: Okay, and in fact, I saw Bottle Rocket for the first time. Oh so, wow! Yeah, it was a great. It was a great excuse to actually get completely hyped as. To- to one filmmaker's work essentially and it's not so much I think I have a different relationship to his work than you do. I think it's not for me, it's not like, oh yeah, I got to have that scene or this scene or that moment, but there's certain kind of ideas or emblems about what he's about that I wanted to cover in five different ways just because they're I think they're important to him and therefore to to the degree I, I do admire him, which is which is pretty not as much as you but but <laughs> I admire him a great deal. And the movies I like he has I really like. I just wanted to kind of cover the bases on that. All right. Sounds good. So what do you have then at number five? So number five is a scene. There's a scene in Bottle Rocket, the first feature that came out of a 1992 short film of the same name by Anderson, where Luke and Owen Wilson are playing friends who are burglarizing the home of the Luke Wilson character who's, who's <laughs> right. now, you know, basically revisiting his boyhood home. And, you know, they're, they're ransacking the place when it's empty, going for the coin collection where they know where it is and they know they can get some money. It's a practice burglary. It's a practice, right? yeah. it's a practice burglary for other jobs to come. And in in the in the feature version of Rot, in Bottle Rocket, there's a moment that is not in the short film where Luke Wilson... Is taking stuff off this and that desk, and he sees kind of his own collection. I believe it's his own collection of toy soldiers, and one of them's out of place slightly. So he actually pauses mid burglary to straighten out the front soldier in this collection. And to me, that is emblematic of the way Anderson works as a filmmaker, because everything is about arrangement. Yes, <laughs> and 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 this sort of, you know, there's there's almost like a stamp collecting quality to his work, because you don't regard stamp. Design as a casual or you know sort of slapdash endeavor and and i don 't regard wes anderson's film as anything there's nothing there's very little casual and slapdash about it what 's curious about bottle rocket Josh is that it it 's not as fiercely stylized as his later work, so there is kind of a more Seemingly casual, kind of spontaneous air to the compositions and to the to the energy of the thing. Although in other ways, a lot of what he's into was right there from the beginning. But I, that moment in Bottle Rocket to me is is pointing the direction of where this filmmaker is going. And it is, you know, he is he is the 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 American king of mise en scène.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I do love that moment too, and it makes me think when you talk about Anderson being a precise filmmaker, which people often do. As Adam and I talked about the Lego movie putting you in – trying to put people in two different camps, the person who builds completely according to directions or just dumps them on the floor and creates something new, you would think Anderson is probably that precise person who who wants everything in order, but maybe not. As his films have have blossomed, you wonder if maybe he is that creative guy, but at the end, what you get – is this sort of precise universe. Mm -hmm. Very nice pick. My number five is going to come from Fantastic Mr. Fox, and it's the salute to the wolf near the end. Fantastic Mr. Fox is, of course, Anderson's 2009 stop-motion triumph about this risk-taking fox who runs into trouble with three greedy farmers. It's just a wonder of a film for me, an adaptation of a Roald Dahl book who's one of my favorite children's authors. I love stop-motion, so it hits me right there, especially when it's done uniquely. I mean, no other stop-motion work looks quite like this maybe Hmm. the Rankin-Bass TV work is the most similar but in current animation it was very unique now after Mr. Fox who's voiced by George Clooney has escaped from the farmers with Kylie Ash and Christopherson they're on the road on this motorcycle they spot a wolf off in the distance while they're driving where'd he come from where'd you come from what are you doing here Canis lupus vulpus vulpus I don't think he speaks English or Latin. Pensez-vous que l'hiver sera rude. I'm asking if he thinks we're in for a hard winter. Now, as Foxy confesses here, and, and he has earlier in the film too, he has a phobia of wolves, but it's really a mixture of fear and jealousy because the wolf represents this lone freedom that he sought for much of the film. It's it's what he wants to achieve until he realizes that pursuing it is going to put his family, really his whole community at great risk. This contrast of the wolf with Mr. Fox is wonderfully realized in how the wolf is visually depicted by the puppeteers here. He's much different than all the other animal puppets in this film. He walks on all fours for one thing. He isn't dressed. He doesn't talk at all. I mean, he's wild. This Hmm. is the wildest creature in the movie. And Fox's teary salute, which the wolf returns, a great touch there. It's part awe. He says, what a beautiful creature. And it's also this mournful goodbye to his own wild past as he's going to embrace now this for better or worse, new domesticity. So Fantastic Mr. Fox (laughs) gets my number five slot. How about your number four, Michael? Uh,
1: My number four is, uh, I can't really go on without questioning the word triumph to describe uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, such a triumph of the Uh, animated art form. I'll try it again. I'll try it a third time someday. My number four is actually a scene that's like many scenes in Moonrise Kingdom and many scenes in Anderson's work as a whole. It's the Edward Norton, Scoutmaster uh, scene where he's kind of breaking in the scout troops on on the plan to kind of bring bring about a non-violent resolution to the, the, the escape of the protagonist, the young protagonist who's run off to meet with his newfound girlfriend uh, on the other side of the island.
0: You have your orders. Use the orienteering and pathfinding skills that you've been practicing all summer. Let's find our man, bring him safely back to camp. Remember, this isn't just a search party. It's a chance
1: to do some first-class scouting. Any questions? Lazy eye.
0: What's your real job, sir? I'm a math teacher, What? What grade? Aid? Any You for that? Lazy I know, but you know what? We're actually in the middle of something here in case you didn't notice. One of our scouts is missing, and that's a crisis. Anybody else? Redford. What if you resist?
1: It's just a series of tracking shots that we see a lot in Anderson's work. In this case, it's alongside. The character's not in front mostly, but uh, throughout the film, the Norton character is seen as kind of the bar- barreling through, often from, you know, the, the tracking shot will kind of lead him forward. Often it just sort of tracks alongside. And it works for a lot of reasons, I think. Norton just turns out to be exactly the right actor to to match what Anderson's doing visually. He he works as we said earlier with with the extreme economy and concision, and he doesn't sort of storybook up the quality of the of the acting. Some people just sort of have a little too much fun with it or not enough fun with the material when they're in a Wes Anderson film because they think, oh, it's all kind of fanciful, make-believe storybook. He's playing it very realistically and kind of low-key, and that that's the key to the style, I think. There's a deadpan, low-key quality to Anderson's work that has to be complemented by the performance or it just ends up kind of drying out the experience. But that that shot... You know, I love tracking shots anyway, Josh. I just like cameras that move um, i I generally don 't like cameras that move in as regimented a fashion hmm. as Anderson's do because there's a half a dozen or ten different visual strategies the swish pan where you 're sort of focusing on one person then you the camera pivots maybe forty five or ninety degrees whoosh, to catch the reaction and then whoosh, back to the reaction to the reaction you know that 's in every film practically. But Anderson is enough of a master at his own particular vocabulary visually that he knows how to make that work and tell the story and keep it moving. And you know, for those of us who don't like the typical over-the-shoulder dun 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 on TV technique or bad film technique, this is you know those tracking shots are a major component to why his films
2: give delight. And this is this is one of them. Well, you've made. A good case for Norton here, and I know you've done it before, but I've got to say, as much as I love that character in Moonrise Kingdom, I've always tripped up over Norton in the film a little bit, and I was similarly tripped up in the Grand Budapest Hotel as the police captain or police chief. He's a little little less effective in that one. Okay, there's just just something, and watching Moonrise again recently, it it still bothered me. He, He forces... The patter of the dialogue in a way that even—and I know we're on the opposite ends of this too—someone like Bruce Willis in Moonrise, I find, doesn't even try. Doesn't try. Uh, he you're, doesn't right, try. you're right. And he for, doesn't, he doesn't me, change anything. To for fit, me, it, yeah. I'd almost rather have that than Norton's sort of trying to hit those beats but being just just a quarter of a second off.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't experience it the same way. I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying about Willis.
2: It might just be and how that, we're responding to the way they're trying to put their personalities into Anderson's style. Okay,
1: and this is a key, I think, why Gene Hackman is so effective in Royal Tenenbaums because Hackman... Is not a guy who, and this is, you know, Anderson. When I interviewed him at Cannes a couple of years ago for Moonrise, he talked about having real troubles with Hackman on the set. Hmm. And you know, Hack, and Anderson's kind of an anal retentive guy. He likes to give line readings. He likes to be in, insanely precise with the blocking. so the actors aren't just sort of vaguely hitting a mark. Right, they're really, really hitting a prescribed mark. And you know, something about Hackman's technique and. His years and the rest of it was kind of like the hell with it. Right, you know. Sure. But but what the results in Royal Tenenbaums? Perfect. Oh, because brilliant. you get because there's a way of Hackman has a way of enlivening and loosening up a very prescribed sort of attack, and you know works wonderfully. And finds in Grand Budapest, it's not the same thing because he's a very very. It's a highly technical, classically trained actor, but, you know, he just he just sort of loosens it up in another way. But
2: you need somebody to do that or else the movies would dry out. My number four also comes from Moonrise Kingdom. Now, in this movie, it isn't really until the two teen runaways played by Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward have already taken off that we get a flashback to how they met the previous summer. And that took place at a local church performance of Benjamin Britten's musical version of the Noah story. She's playing a raven there and he's attending as a khaki scout talk about Anderson's camera and I don't know how this tracking shot works for you because it is very regimented it begins going along a church pew and we see these attentive khakis until we almost bump into Sam the Gilman character because he's leaning forward onto the pew in front of him looking looking completely bored Uh, and it's just this whole sequence is a great example of how Anderson uses the camera to communicate character. So here it nearly bumps into him and his boredom. Then when he becomes so restless that Sam impulsively leaves the sanctuary, it tracks along beside him, even gets unsteady a little bit as a tracking shot when it goes behind him down in the church's basement as he explores what's going on. You mentioned that little touch that Luke Wilson does with the soldier in Bottle Rocket. There are a couple little touches here. That are worth highlighting as well, I think. I don't know if these were the actors, Gilman's impulses, or if Anderson encouraged them, but they're great. There's a kid in an elephant mask that he passes. He just sort of grabs the trunk and tests it out for for its durability (laughs) or something. Then he passes a drinking fountain and he tests that too. doesn't take a drink, just sees if it works. There's also a horror element to this sequence because you've got all these silent kids in the corridors of this church wearing these animal costumes if you remember this one quick shot of some kid in a hen costume brushing his teeth in a bathroom, <laughs> it reminded me actually of – it's like a kitty version of that throwaway shot we've talked about in The Shining with the man and the dog bear doing whatever they're doing right. in the hotel. Right. It's like you just get this subliminal shot of something quite disturbing. Right, right, right. <laughs> the scene here does climax when Sam meets Susie, played by Hayward. And her fellow birds, they're getting their makeup on. And the relationship is just locked in right there. He captures that sort of smitten infatuation that can only happen, I think, probably at that age. He, he pushes the other birds aside and just says, what kind of bird are you?
0: <laughs> I'm a sparrow. She's a dog. No, I said, what kind of bird are you? I'm a raven.
1: Boys aren't allowed in here. I'll be leaving soon.
0: What happened to your hand? I got hit in the mirror. Really? How did that happen? I lost my temper myself.
1: Anderson's talked about... Uh, the theatrical quality of so much of his work and he never he hasn't done any theater he said since the fifth grade but in so many of his movies you have scenes where you're staging theatrical productions I mean in Rushmore he's doing stage productions of Serpico in Moonrise Kingdom they're doing as you say you know Noah's Flood Uh, all all sorts of things and that's and that's what gives the movies a strange kind of netherworld quality not quite not quite cinema not quite theater not quite storybook not quite this but You add it all up and it really is something
2: else. Yeah, that production of Noah's Flood in Moonrise Kingdom, I wouldn't mind seeing that myself. It's probably better than the last three dinner theater things I've (laughs) seen. (laughs) We're going to come back with our three through one picks,
1: and in honor of Mr. Anderson's visual style, we've installed a Dolly track here in the studio for the remainder of the taping. Stay with
0: us.
1: I'll tell you one thing, though. You got more grit, fire, and guts than any woman I've ever met. What? What are you smiling about? Nothing. Look, no. no it really, what's so funny?
0: Nothing. Just these little expressions of yours.
1: I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll take it as a compliment. You're true blue, Ethel. You really are.
2: Welcome back to Film Spotting with Michael Phillips. That was Gene Hackman with Angelica Houston as the estranged couple at the center of that film. And, Michael, I understand that scene is also your number three pick.
1: It's my number three pick. Yeah, I I don't love Royal Tenenbaums like some people do, and it's not it's not one of my top two for Anderson. But it's got so much wonderful stuff in it. It has to be represented. And I love Gene Hackman and Angelica Houston as the motivations much more conventional for ha- the hackman character in this scene than in many scenes and in a lot of anderson scenes in general he's just simply trying to reingratiate himself with his estranged family, and uh, and make amends for what a lousy parody he's been. And it's it's just it's delightfully played. And and uh, between these two, because the the Houston character is beguiled by this guy all over again. Even though she her better instincts are telling her do not believe his load of BS. And it, to, to see these two performers together, it's just it's just pure joy, really. And uh, there's nothing really flashy going on visually in this moment. It, it's a kind of a low-key tracking shot uh, that just simply follows the action and lets these actors do what they need to do in about you know forty-five seconds of time, maybe a minute. It, it's not it's not a scene that stands out dramatically in any way. But I guess it's that kind of offhandedness and that sort of throwaway quality that it, it's it's what keeps Anderson's movies a little bit human. <laughs> uh, it's not so that it all doesn't become this hyper regimented you know, aggressively stylized experience where the human beings get lost in it. That's I, Hackman and Houston are wonderful in this. For
2: sure, yeah. Houston, the find of Houston for his films, I think has been crucial, especially in Steve Zissou. I think she's one of the main reasons that works. And also in Darjeeling Limited, maybe not one of my favorite films, but having just a little bit of her there in a very, very different role than she is in the other pictures. It's great to see her working with him there as well. My number three, I'm going to stick with the Royal Tenenbaums. And it occurs after the chaotic climax. There's the point when Owen Wilson's Eli Cash crashes his car into the Tenenbaum Mansion just before Etheline, the Houston character, is about to be remarried. After that has calmed down and everyone's sort of taking a breath, there's this remarkable two-and-a-half-minute crane shot. So the camera's a little more complicated <laughs> here than in your scene, Michael. It's not just going across, it's going up, down, in and out, and this is all taking place about a quarter of a city block length outside of the mansion. It starts on a priest who's being loaded into the ambulance talking to Bill Murray. Do you have an alternate? No. Ready? Are there priests on call? Goes over to Cash giving a police report.
1: At which point, I apparently lost control of the vehicle,
2: smashed in the house, and killed that poor dog. Then up to the top of the fire truck where we see Gene Hackman's royal talking to the firefighters. I think he's part mutt. Uh, what kind of papers do you have? For And then it's choreographed so that Murray comes around for the next part of this shot. Mm -hmm. So you could just imagine how intricate this has to be in terms of planning. It does encompass, I think I counted, about 10 major characters Hmm. in this film. And this is the kind of picture that has 10 major characters. Those all get worked into this in some way. The final bit is one of those great, bittersweet Anderson moments that makes this about more than choreography. It's a beautiful, light moment of reconciliation between Royal and Ben Stiller's Chaz.
1: I got you a new dog for the boys. I just bought him. You did? Sorry I let you down, Chaz. All of you, uh, I've been trying to make it up to you. What's his name? Sparkle.
2: Thank you. You're welcome. I've had a rough year, Dad. I know you have, Chazzy. I do think this is emblematic of Anderson's style overall, that the camera is going to serve the story even as it's being very active. Also makes room for an emphasis on humor, that little throwaway bit where Luke Wilson in the shot, he has hurt his eye and it's being examined by Seymour Castle's fake doctor. They make time for that little joke. And then that sudden walloping emotion of the moment between Royal and Chaz. I think it's interesting that Chaz gets... This little second here because he's a peripheral character, I think, compared to the other Tenenbaum kids. I think that Luke Wilson's character is at the forefront along with Gwyneth Paltrow's Margot. But Chaz gets this three or four seconds— and it's when he instinctively chokes out, I've had a rough year, Dad, that you understand he's speaking for the whole family. And for me, that brings the emotional force of the film home. So Royal Tenenbaums, a little bit higher up on my Anderson ranking list, Michael, probably. Uh, yeah, I,
1: I know what you mean. I mean, I, when I look back at some old reviews and I, when I when I wrote about Darjeeling Limited, which I like but don't love, I said you wouldn't mind a little more direct expression of an honest emotion now and then. Not that it, Anderson's cold, but... You know, these are characters who let down their guard only occasionally. And Anderson's whole style is about a kind of extreme formalism. You know, that's Mm -hmm. that's what it doesn't feel like a documentary. It's not meant to. It's the opposite. And there are times where you just think, you know, just let's just cut the cut the crap. And but the reason he's an interesting and complicated artist, I think, and the reason that's a good pick, I think, Josh, is you're saying, you know, there's there's a technician and a creative mind at work visually in a scene like that, where he's encompassing all these different tracks of action, all these characters, and yet he knows when to kind of he knows prepare, when to cut the crap, pare it away, and <laughs> yeah. get in there and, and 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 kind of nail it, nail it down. Well, what'd you have for your number two? My number two is uh, a. <laughs> Is is just the briefest of throwaway bits from Rushmore, which is, remains my favorite one of his at least it does today, where Bill Murray's in the car. He's Herman Bloom, the successful, wealthy businessman who's who's got two completely aggravating bullies uh going sons going to this private school, Rushmore, and one of them just lips off, and and Murray, you know, Murray, nobody can. He's got just supernaturally good timing, Bill Murray. Because <laughs> there's and, that and pause. He's driving. He's driving. He hears. He's heard this ridiculous insult. It's this snide little. Guy in the backseat,
0: did you invite that kid to your party, Max Fisher? Come on, Dad. There's gonna be girls there. I'd rather die. Pull your head out of your ass. Two second
1: pause, and then he just starts wailing on him while continuing the drive, and the whole bit takes about seven seconds, and and it could have worked with a different actor, but I, I think I think when you go to when you go to find your favorites in Wes Anderson, it can't, it's not all about what Anderson's up to, it's about what the actors can find, and and that's I, I love that, I, I love that, and there's there's moments, Josh, in a lot of Anderson films where you have this this shrewdly judged two second pause, and then. Something a, a comical action of some kind, and there's a great one in Budapest, Hotel Budapest where, right? Where they're where Ray finds as uh, Mister Gustav is is basically being cornered by the local police, right? For the authorities for suspected of murder, and you know finds takes a second <laughs> just to stand there politely, and then just turns and starts running, and it's, yep. it's wonderful. And that, and the camera doesn't do anything because if the
2: camera moved, then it would kill the joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that moment in Rushmore, I, as many times as I've seen it, and it's the most viewed film for me of any of Anderson's it's the one I will laugh out loud very hard every time even <laughs> though I know it's coming there's something maybe about dads losing it in cars I talked to last week's show about the National Lampoon's vacation moment with Chevy Chase losing it with his right. family so maybe it's that for me but Murray's timing you're right in that scene is absolutely hysterical well I I think we are bringing an Anderson level of precision to our matching of our picks here, Michael, even though we didn't plan it this way. Because what do you have for number two? My number two is a Bill Murray moment from Rushmore. Beautiful. Not in the car. It's actually his cannonball. There are so many to pick from for me from Rushmore because it is my favorite Anderson film. But I love how this is an example of wordless storytelling that he occasionally uses. It communicates everything we need to know about the misery of Herman Bloom, this businessman who does come to befriend Jason Schwartzman's precocious academy kid. First, see him sitting there alone by the pool in the midst of his obnoxious kid's birthday party, right. all sorts of other people are there at their house. He's separate from them, just tossing golf balls carelessly. Well, and you see his pool. wife across the pool. Exactly. You know, with another man. And, and, and not you know. only do they look at him, but the expression on her face. So they're not hiding it is one thing. Right. But she gives him this look of, it's its both disgust, but she's nervous too, which sets up, we don't know what he's going to do here. She, yeah. she doesn't quite know what he's going to do. And then, Anderson uses insert shots so frequently and so brilliantly, again, to communicate story without dialogue. Here, what we get is a family painting of the Bloom family. And notice, of course, Bloom, Herman Bloom, is the only one without red hair in that painting. So (laughs) so you get that there. And on the soundtrack, the crucial music. Nothing in this world can stop me worrying about that girl from The Kinks.
0: Man, a girl fell in love, glad as I can be.
2: It's bluesy, it's plaintive, it has that gurgling guitar. It almost feels like it's pulling you underwater a little bit. I think that's a good example of how music is a tool for Anderson, not a crutch, which is something he does get accused of doing. Well, this moment does culminate in the saggy, shirtless Murray going up that tall diving board, downing a drink... And doing a cannonball, and he still got the cig. He still has a yeah. cigarette. And watching it again, I tried to match if it's actually in his mouth when he goes in the air or not. Couldn't quite, no, couldn't, couldn't quite <laughs> pick that up. I don't think it's still in there when he's underwater. But I, I think Anderson loves
1: this idea of isolation underwater because it goes back. There's a shot it like that. It is a that. motif. Yep. I mean, I mean, Luke, yeah. Luke Wilson's doing the same thing in Bottle Rocket, Right. and and certainly in Steve Zissou, it's uh, there's plenty of that. Where, yeah. Where it's almost like he, in order to tune out the world's problems or just come to some sort of weird moment of understanding on your own, you have to, you have to literally get underwater
2: and off the planet. for He a likes, moment. he likes epiphanies in his films and yeah, they sometimes do take place underwater. I wonder if it's too much actually this cannonball scene to, to claim it as Bill Murray's finest acting moment. And I'll tie it to one of his <laughs> earlier performances to kind of bolster that. I, I feel like it's his John Winger from stripes. It's what would happen if he left the army, Went corporate, got rich, and then just became disgusted with himself <laughs> over it. So maybe maybe that's going a little far, but it is a fantastic Murray moment. It's not
1: in my top five, but but I've, one of the one of the reasons that Murray's performance were, is is truly spectacular in Rushmore is you have without any forced sense of dramatics at all. You have moments where, in this case, Herman Bloom is is accompanying Max Fisher, played by Schwartzman to his father's barbershop. Mm. And, you know, up till now, Max has been saying, oh, yeah, my father's a neurosurgeon, blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual line of BS from Max. Right? And and there's just a great, without a cutaway, without overemphasizing it, Murray just simply registers that, oh, this is his father. And it's a very sweet moment because yep. it's not, again, Murray just, he, uh, would he have been ready to act a moment like that
2: 10 years earlier in his career? I don't know. The key but, there is he makes the choice of not acknowledging it verbally yep. you can see that going on in his mind making that choice right all right that brings us to our number one wes anderson scenes michael which film is it from so my
1: number one is very much like your uh, pick with um, royal tenenbaum's climax in that it's a kind of a summation scene it's it's the rap party after max's play which is I, I, I Forgive me if, if my memory's playing me false here, but it's kind of a it's kind of a nice mixture of highlights from Apocalypse Now and Platoon with a happy ending. Yeah. Tag him and bag him,
0: cherries! We're moving out! Dig him out! I don't know, but I've been told! I don't know, but I've been told! Hello, Esposito. Will you marry me late, John? You bet I will.
1: I think when people talk about, oh, Anderson's cold, or it's, you know, the humor's too eccentric or forbidding or dispassionate or something, he's more of an ironist than a sincere filmmaker, whatever. I don't know. You look at the end of Rushmore and the way it sort of takes Anderson and his camera, to take the time to really acknowledge every major player and all the relationships and really kind of see some hope for everybody. I don't want to sound like a sap and, you know, God knows he's not a sappy filmmaker, but that's that's a sincerely felt moment. And I guess it wouldn't, none of this stuff would would really stay with you, Josh, if it didn't have... Some human reason for being, you know, are there, are there human beings in the middle of these often improbable fairy tales that he's telling? Well, the answer I think it is best is absolutely there are. And I love the way it all kind of gets tied up in Rushmore. And that's the movie that – that was my first Wes Anderson exposure. I didn't see Bottle Rock until l- last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, it was a great gap in my knowledge on him. But I, I thought Rushmore was one of those few times I've seen any kind of remotely commercial comedy – where I just kind of started holding my breath about halfway through, like oh, I hope they don't blow it. Hope they hmm. don't blow it. You know, hope hope it doesn't get stupid. Hope hope this you know, God, if this movie just can just keep its wits about it. Yeah. And it, you know that movie did. I mean, there's some scenes I don't like as much as others, but I love I love the way that ends, and I love the way it, it's a kind of a panoramic send off to everybody. Um, nothing too fancy visually going on there, but.
2: But um, very much in Anderson style, and and just with a, with a full heart, with a full heart. It definitely has that, and it also has a justifiable use of slow motion. I think, which is something that he employs frequently yeah, compared think, to other I, filmmakers. I, I think
1: almost every film has ended with that same sort of signature shot.
2: And this one, it, it's it's crystallizing the moment in a way that's deserved because it's not happy in the sense that everything is solved, I think, for all of these characters, but if they're going to be in a better place eventually, it's because of what's happening there. So we deserve to preserve it Mm -hmm, a little bit mm -hmm. more in slow motion. What's your number one? My number one comes from, you're not going to like this because it's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. That's your number one It's my number one, and this moment continues to hold up for me. It's another climactic moment, The Submarine Dive, where Bill Murray's ocean explorer, Steve Zissou, gets his Ahab opportunity. He finally encounters this elusive jaguar shark that he's been searching for. I love all the elements at play. We talked about in Grand Budapest how it incorporates live action stop motion, CGI aspect ratios. Here we do have a live action shot of a huge group of people within this tiny sub, all jammed in there. But there's CGI going on as well. Stop motion effects of the jaguar shark itself. They're done by Coraline's Henry Selleck. Wonderfully imaginative stuff. None of this should go together, but part of the charm as we've mentioned is that it still works it still does create this fairy tale world that is uniquely anderson again like the royal tenenbaum scenes i mentioned and i think like your scene you just talked about from rushmore the final dance it gathers all the major characters together for what's a moment of epiphany his movies are very much about community i think and, and a broken community and trying to get that back on track in some way so it's important that the major characters in the life aquatic are here together now, when the Jaguar shark floats over the submarine, a wonderful touch here, again, from Murray, everyone else looks up because that's where it's going. And zisu he just stares straight ahead. He's, he's frozen with awe. I connect it with that Mr. Fox moment, seeing the wolf, uh, and he just keeps locked on where the shark had been. Hmm. Many of Anderson's films, I think, could be written off as blatant, obvious therapy sessions for their characters. Uh, A character starts one way and we see him or her progress into a slightly better variation of themselves by the end. I think it's interesting. We didn't get into this, but Grand Budapest notably doesn't work this way. But a lot of his films do. And I think... That can be written off as maybe sappy. I've actually heard some people say he is sappy, but for me, when it's done this creatively and with this much humor, I'm okay with it. Now, you, Michael, teased me. I would never tease you, okay? Our first live show for talking about how every Anderson movie does have a moment that will bring a tear to my eyes. And you're not going to believe it, but this is the one from Life Aquatic that does it for me. There's something about that realization that Zissou has and those hands of everyone coming forward that, again, it's obvious. You know what Anderson's going for, but hey, it works.
0: It is beautiful, Steve.
2: Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it?
0: I wonder if it remembers me. For March 2014, that was the top five Wes Anderson scenes with Josh and Michael Phillips. Now, you had on it the one scene I knew with 100% certainty would be in my top five. And that's, I've had a rough year from the Royal Tenenbaums, probably my number one Wes Anderson moment. And if I really was being honest, I'd probably have a second royal Tenenbaum scene in there as well fair enough i just saw it the other night on tv slayed me and it slayed me the last time i watched it it's when luke wilson says to gene hackman i think they're in the street maybe and gene hackman's leaving and he says dad you were never really dying and he says but i'm gonna live it's Hackman the best. It's so just, good. It really is. Hackman is amazing. That's probably his best line delivery in the movie. And it's just the perfect Wes Anderson combination of comedy and pathos. So, yeah, there you go. I'm two-fifths of the way done. See? Not that hard. <laughs> I don't need to revisit any other Wes Anderson films. <laughs> I'll just go with my top five from The Royal Tenenbaums. Did any of those picks, now that you look at them again, surprise you? Would you change anything if you were to do it all over again? You love Dial of Dogs so much, you would probably have to pick a moment from that. Yeah,
2: I would definitely put one in there. I'm not sure off the top of my head which one it would be maybe fetch maybe the game of fetch mm. might have to go with that i might here i might move up the salute to the wolf higher i mean the longer i get away from that movie that seems to be such an integral moment but
0: i'm pretty happy with where these okay. are okay that is our show if you have any thoughts about wes anderson or anything else you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave us a voicemail 312 264 or email us with an mp3 file At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top
2: fives in the show archives. And if you haven't already, please check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got a couple of other great shows, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU.
0: You can find them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend in Chicago is Final Portrait, Stanley Tucci directing the biopic of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti with Jeffrey Rush and Armie Hammer and... Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs is open now. Out in wide release, the big one, Ready Player One from Steven Spielberg. Next week, Tasha Robinson will be here sitting in for Josh. We'll discuss Ready Player One, and we'll get to Film Spotting Madness, the title match, along with a top five to be determined. If you've got a great suggestion for a Ready Player One-inspired top five list, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is
2: produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information
0: is available at WBEZ.org. Listeners may have heard a new name in there, Andy Mitchell. Indeed, our new production assistant, Jeremy Wellhausen. He's off pursuing the dream. Took off a week or so ago. For Los Angeles, we wish him all the best as he does try to make it there in that crazy movie racket. He really helped us out a ton over the past year or so, and we wish him nothing but the best. Absolutely. Our music this week, it's from Jack White, comes
2: from his album, Boarding House Ranch. More information is at jackwhiteiii.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.